If you want a verse tonight, we'll take verse 19, and we'll just take one word in that verse. You can guess what it is. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So if you think of me as preaching tonight, I'm going to be preaching on that one word, baptizing, or to give a similar word, baptism. But it's more of a discourse, really, on baptism rather than a sermon. I said last time, it's not something I can get excited about. I still believe the Lord has sent me to preach the gospel. But that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't consider something like baptism. I am not preaching on one view of baptism. I'm going to deal with the different views, the two different views. And by the end, I hope, you will realize what my view is. I will hope that you will be challenged as to your own view. And I hope more than anything else that agreeing to disagree on not baptism, we're all in agreement on baptism, but on how it's applied, we will all be able to do it in a spirit of love. To me, that's even more important than winning the argument, as it were, on one's view on baptism. I'm not doing this in terms of my own agenda. It is something that, as elders and pastors, we have agreed to do, and I just volunteered uh, for some reason. If I'm not going to be able to deal in detail with it tonight, I'm going to have to keep an eye on my watch. But if you want to read a bit more about what we're looking at, from the infant Baptist point of view, the simplest treatment I've come across is Packer in his excellent, concise theology. He's got a few chapters there. He's very readable and, in my view, one of the greatest theologians in the latter part of the 20th century. If you want something on believers' baptism, then Dr. Lloyd-Jones, in his brilliant Bible Doctrines series, they've put them all together in one great hulking big volume now, uh, he's got a number of chapters on baptism. If you want to read the best book to have been written on baptism, it is from an infant Baptist perspective. That doesn't mean you have to agree with John Murray's conclusion, but this is probably the uh, best treatment on the subject, John Murray, Christian baptism. So all I want to do tonight is try and answer four questions. What is baptism? What does it signify? What is the mode of baptism? How should we baptize? And who is to be baptized? And as we progress through those questions, it's going to get more controversial. <laughs> so let's start with the easiest question. What is 
baptism. Well, baptism is an ordinance. We had an ordinance this morning, the Lord's Supper. Some people call them sacraments, but I get a bit uh, shaky uh, with the word sacraments because it's got other connotations. So I prefer the term ordinance. It is something God has given. So we didn't decide as an eldership to have communion, and we don't decide to have baptism. Jesus Christ has authorized to his church two ordinances, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, you've got the covenant of grace throughout the Bible. In its old dispensation, there were also two visible ordinances. The initiation ordinance was circumcision. Every male was circumcised as a sign of belonging to the people of God. And then there was a regular remembrance ordinance, which is the Passover. Interestingly, in the new dispensation now, the initiation ordinance is baptism. And the remembrance ordinance is the Lord's Supper. So it's good to start uh, from that uh, general framework. Baptism is an ordinance. So what is an ordinance? What is a sacrament, whether it's communion or baptism? Well, the classic definition, you'll all know this, it's an outward visible sign of an inward spiritual reality. So baptism is an outward thing. Uh, that doesn't mean to say the two extremes we've got to be careful of here is the Roman Catholic extreme of baptismal regeneration, that there's something automatic in the baptism that makes you a Christian. That, that's wrong. But then the other extreme is the Quaker extreme, which says there's nothing important about the physical. It's only the inner experience that matters. Well, hang on, that's not right. Because baptism is a command, just as the Lord's Supper is a command. So even though it's only physical water, physical bread, physical wine, well, not even wine, it's still commanded by Jesus Christ. And I do want to emphasize that uh, this evening. Baptism is not a gospel issue. It's not essential to salvation. You can be saved and not be baptized. But it's still a command. It is still a command. So it's a sign of an inward reality. But there's something else about an ordinance. It's not just a sign, is it? I'm going to give you some history here. In the Protestant Reformation, there was a man called Zwingli. Wasn't that a good name to have? Zwingli. And Zwingli overreacted to Roman Catholicism... And he said, baptism and the Lord's Supper is just a sign. That's all it is. So in the communion, you're just remembering. In the baptism, you've just got a sign of what's happened. It is a sign, but it's more than a sign. It's also a seal. This is the view that Calvin took. So we don't just remember in the Lord's Supper. It's actually a present communing with Christ. Uh, and baptism is not just a sign, it's a seal. Now, what's a seal? Uh, I don't know if those of you of a certain age can remember 
we don't even write letters now, do we? And it's all email. But even when we were writing letters, um, David Morris used to do this. Uh, he used to do it properly. Uh, he bought the most expensive uh, paper and the beautiful envelope. And when he would close the envelope, uh, there would be like a wax uh, seal to it. And in olden days, uh, people on that molten wax, they would stamp their insignia. And the seal is like a seal of authentication, a seal of ownership. So the seal doesn't add anything to the contents of the letter, but it does say, this is my letter. And it's a bit like that with baptism and with communion. As a seal, it doesn't add or contribute to our salvation, but it's an authentication that we are the children of God. Um, think of the numerous weddings we've had here. There's a seal in a wedding ceremony. Do you know what the seal is in a wedding ceremony? The ring. The, the ring, I'm not speaking from experience here, but the ring doesn't add any. It might add to your cost, but it doesn't add anything to the wedding. It doesn't make the married couple more married. But it's a seal. It's a sign that they belong together in a covenant. And it's important, isn't it? As the marriage develops and as you go through struggles, looking at the ring, the partner is reminded, I'm married to that person. It's a seal. So you find this, don't you, in communion. It's helpful to think of baptism and communion together here as ordinances. We're not just looking back. We, we are enjoying God's presence in the communion. And it's exactly the same with baptism. So I say to people when they get baptized, enjoy it in the right sense now. It's not just a witness to those around of what God has done. It's, it's something to be relished. There is a blessing to be had when the person is being baptized. There is a blessing to be had in the congregation. There is a blessing to be had upon the parents that are baptizing their child it's a seal as well as a sign uh, that's why our forefathers they would have called um, baptism the lord's supper preaching singing god's praises praying do you know what they called them means of grace we don't use that term anymore do we a church is defined in terms of all sorts of activities. Not that there's anything wrong with those activities, but the very crux of the church is that we're meeting together to practice the means of grace. Again, Calvin defined the church as the preaching of the word, the uh, practice of communion and baptism and church discipline. It's the means of grace because it's in these means that God speaks to us. Not just the word, but in the singing, in the praying, in the communing, in the baptizing. So it doesn't regenerate us. It doesn't do anything in that sense. But it's more than a sign. It's more than a sign. There is a spiritual blessing conveyed in the baptism. A bit of Latin. It's not ex opere operato. Do you know what that means? Ex opere operato. Nothing automatic happens. So preaching isn't ex opera operato. You've got to believe, my friend, if you want to be saved. 
Baptism isn't ex opera operato. There's nothing magical in the water. A person's got to believe in order to receive the benefits. Or if we're thinking of children, it's not any children. It's the children of believers. So that's the first thing I want to say. Baptism is an ordinance along with communion. And as an ordinance, it's a sign, an outward sign of an inner reality. It's a seal. And, of course, it's also a badge, isn't it, of ownership. I belong to the church of Jesus Christ. That, that's what baptism is. In the New Testament, I long to be back in New Testament Christianity, don't you? Everything's got so complicated these days. I long to have that primitive uh, Christianity again. There was power, there was simplicity there. And you know what happened in the New Testament? People believed the gospel. And what happened to them? What was the outward sign? What was the badge that they were now following Christ? What, what was it? It was baptism. Now, when God moved in this church uh, in the 70s, there was a visitation of the Spirit. What was the outward sign to you that people were being saved? Have I got this right? It was people coming to the front, not to be baptised, but to be received into membership. Now, if you would have been in the New Testament, the outward sign of people responding to the gospel would have been people being baptised. I think we've lost something because when we were in the 60s and 70s fighting against theological liberalism, uh, we were all joining together, weren't we, evangelicals around the gospel? And we were so afraid of dividing over things like baptism that we put it on a back burner. I can understand that, but it's not right. It's not right. So baptism is an ordinance. It's an ordinance. It's a command, so we've got to take it seriously. But just as with the Lord's Supper, not every church does communion in exactly the same way. So, as with baptism, there are different views on how it's done. We're coming to those. We're coming. So, the second question. What is baptism a sign and a seal of? What is it? The verse. Baptizing them in, or a better translation, into the name. Or into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're being baptized into the Trinity. What is that? What is it a sign of? It's a sign of our union with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you, I hope you've got a Bible with you this, uh, this evening, uh, because I'm going to give you now a number of verses. If you uh, turn to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. Verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. Know we not that so many of us as were baptized into what? Somebody give the answer. Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. So we're not just united to the Trinity in baptism. We're united to Christ. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Uh, that talks of the church. So the first thing that the 
ordinance of baptism is a sign of is being united to the Trinity, being united to Jesus Christ, being united to the one true holy universal church. Paul says something very interesting in Corinthians, a church that was divided over personalities. Paul says, is Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.13, is Christ divided? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? That's interesting, isn't it? Because in Corinth, people were grouping around powerful personalities. Some people were saying, I am of Paul. Uh, that's the kind of Christian I am. I'm a fan of Paul. Others were saying, no, no. I would rather have Apollos. He was a great preacher. Others were saying, no, no, it's Simon Peter. But Paul says, you've all got it wrong. You were not baptized into any of those names. You were baptized into Christ. So it's a sign of being joined to Jesus Christ. I can't emphasize that enough. So what else is it a sign of? It's a sign of our union with God with Christ, with his church, it's also a sign of cleansing, isn't it? Acts 2, 37, 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins, for the removal, for the cleansing of sin. And then when God commissions Paul, Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's a lovely picture of baptism. So what does baptism signify? What is it a sign and a seal of? It's a sign and a seal of being Christ's, being joined to him, not another denomination, not another preacher, and of being washed in the precious blood of Christ. And then it's a sign of something else as well. It's a sign of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Titus 3.5 talks about washing of regeneration. Question number three. What's the mode of baptism then? Now this follows quite naturally from what it signifies, doesn't it? However you do baptism, it's got to signify our union with God, with Christ. It's got to signify cleansing and it's got to signify regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Now then, some history. I'm amazed at how little read a number of Christians are when it comes to the church and to the doctrines of the Bible. Some history. Up until the Protestant Reformation, the dominant mode of baptism was immersion. Did you realize that? And I mean by that even babies being immersed. You can watch videos of Russian Orthodox priests dunking babies. It's, it's quite something to look at. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer that Edward VI commissioned said that babies were to be immersed. They were only to be sprinkled if they were sick or weak. Since the Reformation, the greatest of preachers and theologians have been more flexible when it comes to how baptism 
is to be done. And I'm not offering an opinion here now. I'm simply stating the facts. And facts are stubborn things. So if you think of Calvin, Luther, John Knox, the Puritans, uh, many of them, the Calvinistic forefathers, uh, Lloyd-Jones, they would have sprinkled more than immerse. They wouldn't have been against immersion, but they would have said, it's all right to sprinkle. It's all right, there's another method, to pour water. That's called effusion. So the three modes of baptisms are sprinkling, that's the least amount of water, uh, effusion, pouring water, or full immersion. Uh, in our circle, it's full immersion. That's the most common mode these days. That's the one we tend uh, to uh, practice. Now then, does it have to be just by immersion? Or is it right to be flexible when it comes to mode? Well, Spurgeon would say, it's quite simple. The word baptism, Greek, baptizo, it means immersion, end of argument. If only life was that simple. It's not. Most of the time, the word baptizo, baptism, baptize, means immersion. Most of the time. If you've got your Bible... I want to give you exceptions to that. Luke 11, 20, is it 28 or 38? I can't understand my handwriting. Luke 11, let's see what we've got. Luke 11, verse 38. Jesus is dining with the Pharisee, and the Pharisee is amazed that Jesus hadn't washed before dinner. So verse 38, when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first baptized. It's the same word in the Greek, before dinner. Now then, use your common sense here. There's no way that that means that Jesus and the disciples fully immersed themselves before a meal. It simply means that they didn't wash their hands, which would probably signify pouring. So in that verse, the word baptizo doesn't mean fully immerse. It wouldn't make sense, would it? Uh, you wouldn't have much time for your meal. It would mean pouring. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10, uh, the author is referring to washings in the Old Testament, various ceremonial baptizmois, baptizmos. Various ceremonial baptisms, washings. Now, how were washings done in the Old Testament? For example, the blood on the altar. Was the altar immersed in blood? Of course it wasn't. The altar was sprinkled with blood. So the word baptizo there means sprinkling. And then the people uh, had water sprinkled on them to convey being washed. They weren't immersed. Now, if there are some strong Baptists here, they will say, ah, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Yeah, you've got, you got that. Let me read them again. Know we not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. We are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up, etc. So it's got to mean, it's got to mean, 
we are fully immersed going down into the water is like Jesus going down into the grave and coming out of the water, Jesus rising from the dead. Hang on. You can't just take verses out of context. The verses go on to talk about being planted together. How is immersion a picture of that? It talks about being crucified with him. How is immersion a picture of crucifixion? So I can't see, there's nothing wrong with immersion. I practice immersion myself, even though I've got a fear of water. It's good for my sanctification. But you can't say baptism must only be by immersion. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones sprinkled believers. He didn't immerse them. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, as long as the mode signifies being united to Christ. Yes, being united to him in his death, burial, resurrection, but a lot of other things as well. As long as it signifies being washed in the blood of Christ, as long as it signifies regeneration by the Spirit, I think not just immersion, but effusion and sprinkling show those things. Now, you will quote, those of you who have strong views on these things, you will quote uh, Acts 8, Philip and the eunuch went up and then they came up out of the water. What does that mean? Well, all it says is they went, both of them, into the pool and whatever Philip did with the eunuch, whether he poured water, whether he immersed him, it doesn't matter, and then they both walked out of the water. It can't mean that they both were immersed, can it? You don't do that in baptism. I've never come across a baptism where the baptizer is immersed as well. It can't mean that. And Jesus coming out of the water, that can easily mean Jesus just walking out of the river Jordan. It doesn't have to mean full immersion. Uh, I think looking at the biblical evidence, we can be flexible when it comes to mode of baptism, as long as it signifies what baptism is supposed to show. Uh, can I open up a bit here? I've been in some baptism services that have got to ridiculous lengths to fully immerse people. I remember being in a baptism in Truchen in Moldova. Now they really believe in full immersion to the extent that when somebody who was disabled in a wheelchair had to be baptized, they insisted that she had to be fully immersed. So she had two big men fully immerse her in the water. And then, to crown it all, and I was right at the front, okay, during this baptism, a very large lady was being baptized. And she had to be fully immersed. Well, half the water was upon us afterwards. <laughs> the mode. And then, let's get to the fourth question. This is the most controversial one. Who is to be baptized? Let's start with what we're all in agreement concerning. Even those who hold to infant baptism believe in believer's baptism. We all hold that those who profess faith in Christ are to be baptized. There's, there's no disagreement on that. However they're baptized, whether it's by immersion, by sprinkling, or by effusion. Now let's look just at uh, the uh, different verses. It's very useful to do this. Peter on the day of Pentecost. 
this is one of the first examples of the church practicing baptism. I want you to notice uh, what we have here about baptism. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, they're convicted of sin, and then Peter said to them, verse 38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And then we're told they were baptized, verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized. No delay, no baptism classes, no wait and see policy. Uh, in case you think that was unique, if you turn to Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, I've already referred to it, the Ethiopian eunuch, after Philip has explained to him the gospel, he says, what stops me from being baptized? And all Philip says is, if you believe in Jesus Christ with all your heart, you can be baptized. And they pass a pool of water, and they said, let's go for it. No delay. Uh, Peter, uh, in the household of Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, uh, this is now Gentiles, that are uh, hearing the gospel. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. And then we're told, verse 47, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. No delay. Uh, Paul at Philippi, again, these are Gentile converts. Two instances, Lydia, Acts 16, verses 14 and 15. Uh, how simple it is, how complicated we make matters. Uh, we're told that God opened Lydia's heart and when she and her household were baptised. It happened as soon as possible. And then, of course, the Philippian jailer, the very night that he was converted, he took Paul and Silas home and he was baptised with his household. I think we've complicated baptism. But pastor, you'll say, won't we make mistakes if we baptise people as soon as possible as they profess faith? Isn't it wise to wait and see? We evangelicals like that, don't we? Wait and see. We sometimes wait and see and don't do anything. The apostles made several mistakes. Simon Magus, he was baptized, but he wasn't truly saved. Listen, we don't know anybody's hearts. I think baptism should be done as soon as possible after a profession of faith, because baptism isn't a sign of discipleship, ultimately. I know discipleship is part of it. It is a sign of being saved. The discipleship occurs afterwards. So those are the easy <laughs> verses. Now, why do some people, or I should say, why have the majority of Christians in the history of the church in the last 2,000 years held that the children of believers can be baptized as well? Did you get that? It's been the majority view, and we're not thinking now of Roman Catholics. We're thinking of people who have believed the Bible. We're thinking of Protestants, uh, evangelical uh, people. The majority view, up until the middle of the 19th century, has been infant baptism. And it's nothing to do with baptismal regeneration. They do not believe 
that the child uh, is uh, born again because of something in the water. It's because they believe in certain scriptures. And that's what I want to give to you. Whether you agree with this position or not is not the point. And you'll see as we go through these what my view is, I hope. If not, I'll tell you. I'll tell you loud and clear at the end. Because I don't, I don't want to be secretive about this. Now then, people like Spurgeon, Bunyan, and Christmas Evans would have been Baptists. They stand out. They didn't hold to infant baptism. All the other heroes you probably have, <laughs> Whitfield, uh, Daniel Rowland, uh, John Owen, uh, Calvin, they all would have held to infant baptism. So when you've got such giants of the faith, you've got to consider the possibility that you might be wrong. I've got to consider the possibility that I might be wrong in my view of baptism. I like, do you know what Cromwell said uh, to Parliament? He was saying it to the Presbyterians, interestingly. In Cromwell's day, the Presbyterians were a pain. They were really so precise. And do you know what Cromwell said to them? I, I like this. I beseech you in the bowels of Christ, think it possible. You might be mistaken. You might be wrong. You might be wrong. Now then, what, what, what evidence would those who hold infant baptism from the word now, what evidence would they give? Well, the first piece of evidence is the continue, continuity of the Old and New Testaments. Those who are Baptistic would just take the New Testaments. But people who hold to infant baptism would say, God hasn't just given us a New Testament, he's given us a Bible. So the covenant of grace runs throughout the Bible in the Old Dispensation, the Old Testament, and in the New. And as I said at the start, in the Old Covenant, there was a sign of belonging, and that was the circumcision of every male. And that didn't mean that everyone that was circumcised was truly saved. Not all who were Israel were Israel. Uh, yet God still gave a sign of circumcision as the seal of the covenants. A number who were circumcised weren't circumcised in their hearts, were they? That's a sign of repentance. But God still gave that sign. So what I'm saying is this. In the old dispensation, God didn't just look at people as individuals. He looked at them as families and even as a nation. So the covenant of grace goes into the New Testament. Has anything changed? Has anything changed? To begin with, there is no solid evidence of a child of a believer being baptized in the New Testament. But neither is there any evidence, because the New Testament is such a short period of time, of a person who is uh, converted and uh, uh, who grow up and uh, have their own children, and those children grow up and then become Christians and are then baptized. Can you see what I'm getting at? So... I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 7. This is quite a watertight argument. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7. 
Verse 14, Paul is thinking of mixed couples. So if you've got an unbelieving partner, an unbelieving husband, or an unbelieving wife, how does God look at that family? Well, Paul puts it very well. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, he says, the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The wife's converted, the husband isn't, but God looks at husband and wife as one unit. So it doesn't mean that the unbelieving husband is saved, but it does mean God looks at him as belonging to his church. And then he says something interesting. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, otherwise your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. Paul is taking it for granted that in that situation, the children are sanctified. They are part of the family of God. Now, that doesn't say that the children are regenerate. It doesn't say that they're saved. But God doesn't just look at us as individually saved Christians. He looks at families. So those of you who have an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife, it's not just you that is, as it were, the Lord's in that relationship. God looks at both. And if there are children, God looks at those children as being parts of his family. It doesn't mean that they're converted. What it means is God looks at us as units as well as individuals. So some of you were very down this morning. Do you know why? Because you would say, we lost yesterday. What do you mean, we lost? Were you playing? You weren't playing rugby yesterday, were you? But we were being represented by our team. So there are all sorts of ways where things are not just individual. They are an unit. We've lost that. Evangelicalism has become too individualistic. How do you view your children? Do you see them as part of the church? Of course you do, don't you? Do you think they're little heathen, if you pardon the pun? They're not. They need to be saved. They need to be regenerate. And at some point, they will be, if God works in their hearts. But surely you would say they're part of the church. Otherwise, why do we dedicate? Can you, can you see the points? And can you see how those who hold to infant baptism think through these things? There's nothing in the Bible about dedication. If you want to do dedication as the Bible did, I would, I would have to keep your children. <laughs> that, that's what Eli had to do with Samuel. You can't do that. You can't argue that Jesus has given us the Lord's Supper and dedicate. You can't. So at least infant Baptists have a scriptural basis for dedicating their children to the Lord. They believe that their children are part of the church. Not that the children are necessarily saved, but that they're part of the covenants. And that they can have the sign, as in the Old Testament, circumcision was the sign of belonging to the covenant. The new covenant doesn't lessen what was in the old covenant. It expands it. And so there's nothing wrong with having baptism as a sign to the children of believers that they're part of the covenant. I think there's something lovely about an infant baptism service where the emphasis is not on the response of the individual like in a believer's baptism. It's on the fact that God has his covenant of grace. And in this covenant of grace, 
God has promises and that the children are part of that covenant, even though at a later time they need to be saved. My problem with this view is that in the old, it was more physical. Uh, God's covenant was limited to a nation. You were born into a nation, and that made you part of the covenant people. In the New Testament, there's no more physical, is there, apart from baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's now all nations, and it's now by the new birth that we enter. But there is still a strong argument from 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. And then you have verses. Uh, the classic one is Act 2.29, for the promises unto you. What comes next? And to your children. To your children. So those who hold to infant baptism will say, God's promise, the covenant promise, is not just for me, it's to my children. And there's something very precious about that. You're beginning to see where I'm coming from now. The problem is you have to take the whole context. It's not just children, though, is it? And to all that are afar off. And the next generation. And the generation after that. So I'm not convinced that that verse says we can baptize the children of believers. The most famous verses are the ones I've already quoted from Acts 16. Lydia and her house were baptized. The jailer and all that were in his house were baptized. But the problem is we're arguing from silence here, aren't we? One way or the other. We don't know if that meant that his children were baptized. We don't know if it meant that everybody in the house believed and therefore were baptized. We just don't have enough evidence. Can you see now why we can't be dogmatic one way or the other? And then when you do consider the verses in the New Testament, because we're not in the Old Covenant, we are in the New. And when you consider the clarity of such verses, believe and be baptized. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe, and it doesn't say, and is not baptized, will be condemned, because baptism isn't essential. Those that accepted the message were baptized, about 3,000. Isn't that amazing? Think of a baptism with 3,000 people. You couldn't immerse. I don't think John the Baptist immersed. He would have had to do weights every day to have had enough strength to have immersed that many people. Have you been to the Jordan? I went to the Jordan in the middle of the summer. It's not deep enough in a lot of places. If you ever read B.B. Warfield, you need a big brain to understand Warfield. He's got a brilliant paper on the mode of baptism from history, and he argues quite convincingly that John the Baptist probably stood in the Jordan and poured water over the people there. Now, you're coming to the points where you can see what my view is. What is your view? We all believe that baptism is a command. It's not essential to salvation, but Jesus has commanded it. So I want to ask, and I'm not doing this to be controversial, have you been baptized? We've got some people, I remember one person sharing with me the other day how they grew up in this church. They were dedicated as a child. They came to faith, 
And it wasn't until their late 30s that they realized they hadn't been baptized. That's not right, you know. You must be baptized. Not in order to save you, but because it's a command. It is a command. Now, whenever a person comes to see me about baptism, I will say to them, do you realize there are different views? That our church, in its confession of faith, does allow for infant baptism. It's not christening. If you have been baptized as a child, and if that was in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, that is valid, I will say, in the eyes of many godly people, and certainly in terms of our confession of faith as a church. I will let them know. And if they've never been baptized at all, if they were only dedicated, I will say to them, look, you do need to be baptized. End of argument. But if they'll say, but I was christened as a child, I will say, well, in your conscience, this is important, in your conscience, if you consider that valid, you don't have to be baptized again. But if in their conscience they feel that they weren't baptized properly again, I will more than readily baptize them by immersion. You've got an interesting dilemma, you see. Those who hold to believers' baptism, what do you do if a person has backslid? What do you do if a person wasn't saved when they had believers' baptism and they come back to the Lord? Do you baptize them again? I remember one person, I can see Ben uh, nodding his head. I remember one person, he had so many going away uh, from the Lord, he would have had to have been baptized about seven or eight times. Where do you stop? Where do you stop? We have had infant baptisms in this church. When I became pastor, I wanted to make sure that they were announced. We didn't have them in the main services. At the time, it might have been too contentious, but we still announced them, and we had them on a Sunday afternoon, and I was happy to take part. But I could never baptize. My conscience wouldn't allow me to baptize the child of a believer. It's not my view. I can see the arguments. In my mind, I'm nearly convinced because such great godly men have held the view. But my conscience won't allow me to do it. So I'm happy to support it, to take part in it, as I will do in the baptism that we will hold in the new year. But I can't actually do the baptism. But thank God we've got one elder who was... A minister and we've got another minister down the road and there are other ministers one in Ely and well several in Ely now who will do it and these are evangelical men they and they believe biblically in infant baptism I've never been baptized as a believer I'm happy with my baptism by a liberal minister in North Wales in 1970. Why? Because there was water and because it was done in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I wasn't baptized in the name of that minister. I was baptized in the name of Christ. John Calvin was happy with his Roman Catholic baptism as an infant. So we must come to our own view. Uh, so baptism is a command. But how we do it we can have different views because you've got good people on both sides. Uh, 
And then I've just got a quote as I come to a conclusion. I don't know what you make of this. Uh, the greatest theologian of the second half of the 20th century, Packer. The Christian nurture. The problem those of us who don't hold to infant baptism have is how do we view our children? Can you see the difficulty? They need to be saved, but they're not outsiders, are they? They are part of the church. So how, how do we deal with that? Packer, the Christian nurture of Baptist and pedo, pedo-Baptist is infant Baptist, and pedo-Baptist children will be the same. Dedicated to God in infancy, either by baptism or by dedication, Packer says, which some see as a dry baptism, <laughs> they will then be brought up to live for the Lord and led to the point of professing their faith when they're saved. And then they will show that either in confirmation or baptism, which some will see as a wet confirmation. I don't know what you make of that. And then to quote the greatest theologian of the early church, St. Augustine, you know this, in essentials, gospel matters, unity. But don't make this a gospel matter. Baptism is a command, not essential, it's still a command, but how we do it, who is to be baptized, there are so many godly people taking different views. So in non-essentials like this, liberty. That's why our church has an open policy on baptism. And in all things, charity, love. I think it's brilliant that next Sunday evening, uh, the elders and myself and Andy will be on a panel. And you can ask us any question you like on baptism. Ask every elder if you want. Ask Andy uh, what uh, their views on baptism are. We're not divided. We are of one accord when it comes to this. But we have different views just as in the history of the church, people will have different views on baptism. Imagine having Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones as a believer's Baptist, and he only sprinkled on one side, and, I don't know, um, John Murray, a pedo-Baptist, on the other. Well, may God bless us all, and may you come to your own conviction. It's important to have conviction, but in all things charity and liberty because we've got a gospel to stand and preach for for his name's sake now let's sing a hymn about belonging to the church glorious things of thee as spoken zion city of our god he whose word cannot be broken formed thee for his own abode uh, number 333 
heaven, we praise thee for those solid joys and lasting treasures that none but Zion's children know. And to keep us from getting het up about outward things, even this precious truth of baptism. And just help us, O oh God, to come by our own understanding, by our own conscience, to a conviction. And we thank Thee, O Lord, for the baptism services this church has had for the hundreds that have been baptised, even in the last decade or so. And we pray that they will be confirmed in their faith. And for uh, the coming baptisms and for the children in our church, we don't want to consider them as not belonging to the church, whatever our view of baptism may be. And we pray for parents here that they will be helped to nurture them in the things of God. And whether by dedication or by baptism, uh, just help us, O oh God, to show uh, the people uh, that we mean to bring our children up, not as the heathen do, but as citizens of Zion. And we long, Father, that in thy time they may not just come to know thee, but that great preachers and missionaries will arise from them. Lord, we long for days when 3,000 will be saved and baptised in one sermon. We don't know how we do that, but Father, it would be an amazing problem to have. And now let us say together the grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.